So many classes. There was writing class and art class and gym class and music class and bathroom class. And then math. Uh, not a math guy. Um, there were these uh, catch-all classes. I don't know if you all remember those. Language arts. Um, social studies. Uh, they got broken down into more specific like history and civics, government. English, literature, vocabulary, uh, the science arts got broken out into biology and chemistry and physics and probably other things that if I had paid attention, I would know. Um, and then in high school, there started to be these electives, and those were supposed to be the fun ones, right? But only about 50% of the time they were. Um, classes like marine biology or weightlifting, which you can tell I spent a lot of time in. Um, poetry, which I did actually spend time in. <laughs> The list goes on. Um, but I want to tell you, in my entire academic career, uh, there is one class that stands out as the most successful class in my academic life. A class that delivered on what it said it was going to do better than any other class um, that I ever took. And no, it wasn't weightlifting. Um, the class that was the best, most useful class that I have ever taken in my life was typing. I mean, I'm not kidding. There is no class that I ever took that actually delivered on what it said it was going to do. You may have thought like, well, English is going to be the class that you used. No, I actually spoke English before I took English class. My children have no excuse for making anything less than an A in English. It's their native tongue. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I took Spanish for six years. I can barely speak it. Un poquito. Uh, yo tengo dos cheesy gordita crunches, por favor. Y un Mountain Dew Baja Blast. Um, <laughs> I can kill that, right? But typing, like typing, let me tell you, I entered that semester of typing, like typing like that chicken from Moana. Hey, hey. <laughs> it was like, and I'm telling you, me and Mavis Beacon, like, we got after it. Like, I can defend entire cities from falling words um, with these fingers. I started typing like a chicken, and by the end of the semester, I was running through that keyboard like Usain Bolt. I mean, it was like each one of these fingers got their own brain and central nervous system. Biology, check. Um, typing class delivered uh, to a level that no other class in my academic history ever did. Um, and the reason that I can say that is, is that generally we know what classes, what courses, um, what products or programs are supposed to do for us. Like, what's the result of taking Spanish? You can learn to speak Spanish, right? What's, uh, what's the intended result of, of cooking class? Home economics. That you would learn to cook, Right? Uh, the intended effort, uh, the intended purpose of accounting class is that you would learn how to account. Um, it, what's the point of joining a gym? You either lose weight or put it on in strategic places, right? <laughs> like, what about taking quilting class? Don't want to be discriminatory. Here's quilting class. Is that you would learn to quilt. So what is becoming a Christian supposed to do uh, to you? Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, 
You are the best. Um, God, I pray that you would use uh, this time and this short passage uh, in your word to grow us and change us and challenge us, Lord, um, that in places where we may have lost our saltiness, um, that you would bring it back. In places where the light has maybe grown, grown dim for us, that you would relight it. God, I pray, um, I pray that as Hudson challenged us as we were walking out of the back room, uh, that we would have fun, that being near you would be fun and remind us of uh, the life that you have for us to live. So Jesus, please, uh, please do that thing that you do where you just transform us from the inside out, all of us, even me. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, today, through our passage, I want to kind of look at three different main subheadings. Uh, it would be the effect of salvation on a life, um, what the effect of salvation on a life is not, and then uh, how the effect of salvation on a life is to be utilized. So if you're taking notes at home, that's where I can lead you. Um, so what is becoming a Christian supposed to do to you? Uh, or for you. Um, some of the things you might come up with, well, maybe it's, it's supposed to get you to heaven, right? Uh, other people might say, well, it's supposed to make you happy, um, or, uh, you know, that you never have to be alone again, and, and those, are all, those are all good byproducts. Um, some people might say that it's supposed to give you the ability to speak in other languages, um, or to heal people, or... Uh, you know, various different things. People might say different things. Um, but for what I believe is the real answer, what this book teaches is the real answer is I'm reminded of a time when Jesus walked into a pool area uh, where a bunch of uh, disabled individuals were laying around waiting for some hocus-pocus uh, cure for what ailed them. And he walked up to a man who couldn't walk and he asked him a simple question. What was it? Do you want to be well? Do you want to be well? In Ephesians 1.17, Paul puts it fairly simply. Uh, he says that he, in his love, predestined that you would be whole and holy by his love. That you would be whole and holy by his love. That God wants to make you whole, and he wants to make you holy. Um, when you wake up in the morning and you're healthy, how do you know that you're healthy? Interesting question, right? I wake up in the morning, I feel healthy, but how do you know that you're healthy? Or, or maybe, you know, if you've had an injury recently, and if I knew somebody in the congregation who had an injury recently that I could interview uh, about that, somebody maybe who ribbed me in the hallway uh, as we went, he was wearing bright blue shoes. Um... But, uh, but if you've had an injury recently, how do you know that you're better? Uh, do you know that you're better um, because you feel better? Or do you know that you're better because you can actually do the thing that you were injured, uh, that kept you from, that your injury kept you from doing? Um, being better from an injury or healthy when you've been sick is not a feeling. All right, I run a lot, uh, at least I try to. I ran 10 miles yesterday, and I'm feeling it today. 
Um, sorry, flex. Yes, I didn't go to weightlifting class very much, but I can run. Lock the wind blows. Um, recovering imitation is the uh, title of our sermon. Uh, and I'm feeling it today, but I get these little micro tears in my calf. Um, and there's different things that you can do to, to work that out. There's, there's scraping. That's probably the less invasive. There's massaging. And then there's the more invasive of dry needling which is incredible. You actually go and pay somebody to stick needles in your legs and then hook them up to electrodes so that they go back and forth really, and, and uh, you look like your leg is vibrating on its own, and, and you, it's like Frankenstein. It's amazing. It's alive. And, uh, but a few days after I'll go to therapy for these little micro tears, I feel better. Um, but I don't know that I'm better until I can actually get out and run pain-free. You know, and so you sort of manage that, that running load until you can get back to doing what you were doing before. See, being better isn't a feeling, it's a functionality. Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Come and be intimate with me and I will give you function and purpose. Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me, and out of his heart will flow streams of living water. Jesus said, abide in me, for apart you can do nothing. The healing of our hearts through the sin-shattering truth of the gospel, the restoring of our souls by the washing uh, of his blood, the if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. That internal revolution of Christ that we have come to focus on so much in this generation as simply being an internal revolution. For Jesus was never just an internal revolution, redemption, or restoration. It is, an inex it is inextricably linked to an external representation. What happens inside of us isn't meant to stay inside of us. It is supposed to manifest in our lives. The effect of knowing Jesus as your Lord and Savior is not simply a feeling, it's a functionality. Or as my father-in-law used to say a lot, son, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And then he would say, as a candidate for my daughter's hand in marriage, you are pitiful. Um, the second part was a joke. He likes to quote movies out of context at hurtful times. Um... Or perhaps even more to the point, um, the proof of a changed life is a changed life. Or as Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. See, the thing is, is that if the gospel is in you, if salvation is in you, if Jesus is in you, it comes out of you. So have you been made well by the great physician? In the same way that you would test your, your injury by going out and performing, it, we sort of have to say, let's see, have you? The most straightforward and, orth and simply orthodox appropriation of this healing gospel on a life is that we are saved by Christ alone, through faith alone, not by works, but this faith never stays alone. Salvation always results in good works and a changed life. And what is this changed life? Well, according to our passage today, a changed life is one that glorifies God. 
So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. As the shorter catechism states, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In the fall of man, our ability to glorify God was hijacked. It's like the wires got fried when lightning would strike near your house and then for the next week you'd discover all these things that didn't work anymore, like a VCR. Um, It shouldn't escape us or fail to wow us that. And look, don't forget that before Christ, you were unable to fulfill that most basic purpose of humankind, to glorify God in anything you do, much less whatever you do. And that in coming to Christ and becoming a Christian, your functionality as an image bearer of God is restored. Um, We have this responsibility as the Imago Dei, the image of God. You know, and that is a huge part of how we look at every single person, man, woman, boy, girl, adult, child, uh, at the end of life, uh, the unborn, where we as believers know the responsibility of the Imago Dei, the thumbprint, that even through fallen creation, that the thumbprint of God and the sanctity and the value of life is on everything. However, our role as the Imago Dei shouldn't just be translated as that we are images of God. The literal translation of Imago Dei is that we are imagers of God. We do not simply bear his image, but the responsibility of the Imago Dei on our lives, theologically speaking, is that we would actually put forth the image of God into the world. Um, And I did not make that up. That is straight from RTS. Um, That we have a responsibility to actually image God out. Not just simply to look in the mirror and be like, I am made in the image of God, but actually to step out into the world and to image as a verb, him, to the world. And this is really getting at what Paul is starting to say here in the passage. The thing that we glorify is the thing that we display. The thing we glorify is the thing that we display. Anybody got a trophy case at home? As an adult, probably not. But as a kid, when you get trophies, you put them on your bookshelf in your room. It's your glory, right? This is the time I went to Virginia Beach and, and won this tournament. This is the time that, uh, that I got named to an all-tournament team. Here's the plaque on the wall that says that I was the best real estate salesperson in the Lake Norman area or whatever. Like, these are our, our trophies, but it's what we display um, is, or what the thing we glorify is the thing that we display. And this glory, though, that is uh, where Paul is telling us whatever we do, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, which the Greek there for whatever is everything, I think. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This glory is not a thing to be, just to be viewed. It has volition. The glory that we are supposed to glorify God with, it isn't just pretty, it's powerful. And specifically, it is powerful for drawing others to salvation. Do you know that that's a huge part of you glorifying God is that others would see him and be drawn to salvation? Paul's close connection between glorifying God and the salvation of others follows right in line with Jesus when he said in John 6, I, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Think about that. 
Like, what a unique claim that Jesus can make. You lift up Muhammad, Muslims come. You lift up Buddha, Buddhists come. You lift up Jesus, all men come. I mean, there is no personality in the history of the world, past, present, or future, that draws people like Jesus does. By glorifying him, by glorifying him, we are drawing people to him. That's why Paul goes so quickly uh, into verse 33 where he says, Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, uh, that they may be saved. And this isn't just because Paul was lit on fire for this sort of thing. Paul understood that receiving salvation leads directly to glorifying God, which leads to people coming to know him. This kind of God-attracting glory is inherent to being made well in Christ. That is the effect of salvation on a life, is that we walk into the world as healed people. So what the effect of salvation on life is not, we sort of butt up against it in this passage. 11.1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Or as uh, another translation of that, which you might be more familiar with, says, uh, follow me as I follow Christ. And this, this verse is really where I kind of want to stick in for the remainder of our time together. When Paul says that in, verse, in, in 11, verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, Paul says that in our 2023 American sensibilities feel like he's stepped over the line from confidence into cockiness. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ or, as, uh, or follow me as I follow Christ. I mean, how many of y'all, not show of hands, just yourself, rhetorical question, how many of you have ever said that to somebody before? I mean, I hope that you have. But how many of you have actually ever said that to somebody? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. How many of you have ever said that to somebody before? I mean, Paul, that is a bold thing to say, is it not? Oh, we would never. <laughs> no, 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 no. Not in, not in 2023 in, Southeast Ameri- in, in the southeastern part of the United States of America. We would never say that. Why not? There is a, uh, there's one of these kind of church urban legends, you know. It's kind of these conversations that took place between heroes of the faith um, at different times uh, that no one can really neither confirm or deny. But the story is told about uh, an encounter between St. Thomas Aquinas and Pope Innocent II. Um, and look, I offer this story not as any form of anti-Catholic sentiment, um, but, uh, but the story is this, is that St. Thomas Aquinas, before he was saint, he was just Thomas Aquinas, uh, he went to visit uh, Pope uh, Innocent II, and Pope Innocent, when he stopped in to visit him, was counting money. Um, and, uh, and Pope Innocent looks up and when Thomas Aquinas says, oh, hey, how's it going, Pope? And he goes, oh, it's going very well. And in reference to the story in Acts, the Pope looks at him and goes, well, Thomas, it appears as though the church doesn't, isn't able to say uh, silver and gold have we none any longer. And Thomas Aquinas, without missing a beat, looks back and he says, yes, and neither can she say, get up, take, a, get up, take up your mat and walk. 
The reason I share this story is because there's, there's this sense of uh, trading something for something else. Um, there's this sense that, that we've traded something powerful in that story for something that's more temporal. And when it comes to Paul's apparent boast in chapter 11, verse 1, I can't help but feel like something similar has happened to us in our American evangelicalism. Because so much of our lives in public these days as followers of Jesus, as Christians, especially in the Southeast United States, are lived in reaction to a supposed history of fundamentalist legalism, most of us would have a really hard time saying to someone, imitate me as I imitate Christ or follow me as I follow Christ because it smacks of arrogance. It smacks of legalism. It feels like what we're walking up to somebody and saying is, follow me, I've got this thing figured out. Hey, do what I do because I've got it right. And we would never want to come across that way. We would never want to engage with the world around us in this way of saying, like, I'm it. I'm, as they used to say when we were growing up, all that in a bag of chips, right? Feels like we're saying, hey, look at me. You got questions on how to live this life? The line forms right here. Come on. And all of it feels like arrogance that comes from legalism. And people these days, they don't like legalism. We'd be far more likely to see ourselves saying something like, uh, hey, look at how free I am as I follow Christ. Come be free with me as I follow Christ. Or look how loved I am as I follow Christ. Or come debate with me as I debate for Christ. <laughs> or even look at my self-esteem as I follow Christ. We don't want to be seen as legalistic. We don't want to be seen as fundamentalist. And ultimately, we don't want to be seen as self-righteous. Open-mindedness is the secular Phariseeism of our day. Um, and, uh, and so we run from anything that smells like, tastes like, or looks like legalism, including this admonition of Paul. But part of that is that we don't understand legalism and we don't understand its twin demon Antinomianism, antinomianism, which I say in order to make myself sound smart, but it actually is important to what we're going to talk about. Dr. Timothy Keller does great work laying out these two paths um, to losing the gospel. He notes that both words, legalism and antinomianism, which in case you're trying to write this at home, is A-N-T-I-N-O-M-I-A-N-I-S-M, antinomianism. These two words are derived from the Latin and Greek words for law and neither produce gospel functionality. Keller says this, he says, Legalism is the view that we can put God in our debt and procure his blessing with goodness. Legalism is far more than the conscious belief that I can be saved by my good works. It is a web of attitudes of heart and character. It is the thought that God's love for us is conditioned on something we can be or do. It is the attitude that I offer certain things. Uh, my ethical goodness, my relative avoidance of deliberate sin, my faithfulness to the Bible and the church that support Christ's work and contribute to God's goodwill towards me. A legalistic spirit leads to being ungenerous, harsh, overly sensitive to criticism, deeply insecure, and jealous of others because our sense of our personal identity and worth has become entwined with performance and its recognition 
rather than being rooted and grounded in Christ and his unmerited grace. That's legalism. And we don't want to be legalistic, do we? No. It is so uncool to be legalistic. So we want to run in this day to the freedom. Look at the freedom in Christ, right? We want to run to the life in Christ. Look, I love John 10.10 as much as the next guy. But there's a whole lot more to uh, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full than just saying like, I'm here, we're going to have full life. Um, and that is where we kind of would rather run and be found in antinomianism. Keller defines antinomianism saying this, antinomianism is the idea that we can relate to God without obeying his word and commands. It too is more than just the formal belief that I don't have to obey God's law. It is the thought that since God loves me regardless of my record, he doesn't mind how morally or immorally I live. It's the attitude that God so accepts me as I am, he only wants me to be myself. This can often metastasize into the belief that the only way to be a free person is to jettison the belief in God altogether. So, just to summarize this, on the one hand, you've got legalism. Legalism is uh, that essentially at its core that God can't be trusted and that his goodness and love of me is, is conditional and therefore like I need to add something to this. And my staying uh, in salvation is the result of my effort uh, and that I'm earning this as I move forward. And if you want to be like me, I can show you how to do it. But then on the other side of things, there's antinomianism, which may seem like the lesser of two evils, but it's not. Because antinomianism says that essentially uh, God can't really be trusted to help me define myself, for help me to come to some sort of understanding of myself, for me to self-actualize. And so I've got to take that into my own hands. I need to get away from the laws because the laws just constrain, the Spirit gives life, and we can take all sorts of verses and we can use them. But both of them are born out of a lack of trust in the character of God and a lack of belief in what God can really do if he gets a hold of our lives. We should remember that the thing that we hate that is at the end of both of these is a righteousness that's based on ourselves. Your ability to be antinomian is something that you do on yourself. It is a way to make yourself righteous. Legalism, as we're well familiar with, is another way to try to make yourself righteous. It is self-righteousness that we're supposed to run from as gospel-centered believers. We can't run from the fact that we've been made righteous. That's what Jesus did for you on the cross. Righteousness is not the enemy. Righteousness before a lost, broken, and hurting world, regardless of what they say, is not something to be avoided. We have been made righteous. Y'all, we're Christians. We've got something that other people don't have. We got a lot of things that other people don't have. Have you ever thought about just the Holy Spirit for a second? Look, if I'm sitting at the stoplight, if you're sitting at the stoplight today, and you're in your car, and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and you've asked him into your heart, and he's done this regenerative work in you, he's put his Holy Spirit inside of you. And if at the stoplight beside you, there's somebody who is not a Christian, 
who has not had the regenerative work of, of the Holy Spirit uh, in them, they don't have the Holy Spirit. It's almost like there's something physiologically different about you than about them. You have the Holy Spirit. It's almost like, hey, I've got this third lung over here. You know, like, look at this mutation that helps me run faster or do better. Y'all, you're Christians. This is, that's true of us. I don't know if, maybe what we don't want to say is that we don't want to say that we're better than anybody else. But in the sense of healing, you are better than others. This shouldn't puff you up because you didn't do it to yourself. But at some point, as followers of Jesus, you need to pound your chest and realize what's inside of you. Don't be self-righteous. But you have been made righteous. So the effect of salvation on a life and how it's supposed to be utilized. Look, 1 Corinthians is a hard book to read. Just like you're not supposed to have favorite children, you're not supposed to have favorite books of the Bible. I think part of that is that if you have favorite children, then one might not be, might be your least favorite, and heaven forbid that we would do that, you know. But I, I'm confident in saying that 1 Corinthians is one of my least favorite books of the Bible to read. The reason is because it's so hard. 1 Corinthians is a hard book to read. Paul knew Corinth well. It was an important port city in the ancient world. It had lots of temples to Greek and Roman gods. It was a big economic center. And so Paul went there on purpose to preach the gospel. And he did, and people came to know Jesus. But as we read this letter, we discover that he is writing to a wildly confused, both legalistic and antinomian crowd. There's kind of five major sections, but this whole letter, this whole letter is Paul just basically writing and going, and another thing, and another thing, and another thing. I mean, but there are, I mean, there are five big problems that he's confronting. The first is divisions in the church. The second is sex. This, the third is food. The fourth is problems with gatherings of believers. The fifth is the theology of the resurrection. And we don't have time to go into all of those things, but suffice to say, if you read 1 Corinthians, you realize Paul was stepping into a minefield. There were problems everywhere. I mean, there's just chapters in 1 Corinthians where Paul is, there, you'll, you'll watch it, you'll see like there's a set of quotations and he's just answering some crazy question. It's like, hey, we're married. Are we supposed to be intimate with each other? Like, and he's like, yes, you, yes, you should do that. Like, and then there's other people where it's like, hey, circumcision, what should we do about that? And he's like, oh, geez, here we go again. Uh, you know, like, and then there's times where it's like, hey, we bought our food at the meat market and somebody said it was sacrificed to an idol. Can we eat that? And he's like, yes, with some people, no, with others. Like, and he's just having to wade through this thing again and again. It's a hard book to read. And it's especially hard, too, for those of us who want people to know Jesus because it kind of paints for us this picture of how easily folks can go off the rails. And it's into all of this confusion that Paul's silver bullet, that Paul brings his silver bullet solution to the problem. Paul's silver bullet solution to the problem is not that we would all read the right book. It's not that we would all have the same right theology. Paul's silver bullet solution is not that we would ascribe to the same 
staunch moral code that we would all just get in line and just do the right thing. Paul's silver bullet solution in this is to imitate him. He said he, his silver bullet solution to everything that this, that this congregation that he dearly loves, which struggles with legalism and antinomianism, his silver bullet solution is to offer himself as a demonstration. Elton Trueblood said um, once, and that's a name that, that our denomination is not super familiar with, um, as he was fairly Pentecostal, I believe, but he said this, and I love it. He said, what we need is not intellectual theorizing or even preaching, but a demonstration. One of the most powerful ways of turning people's loyalty to Christ is by loving others with the great love of God. Um, you can never re revive faith by argument, but we might catch the imagination of puzzled men and women by an exhibition of the fellowship so intensely alive that every thoughtful person would be forced to respect it. If there should emerge in our day one such fellowship, holy without artificiality and free from the dead hand of the past, it would be an exciting event of momentous importance. A society of genuine loving souls set free from the self-seeking struggle for personal prestige and from all unreality. It would be something unutterably priceless and powerful. A wise person would travel any distance to join it. Y'all, you can't miss the fact that Paul's answer to the difficulties of learning to follow Jesus is to say, watch me. And if you think that Corinth was any harder than Charlotte, you are out of your mind. We have a world that desperately needs us to walk out and be able to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. I mean, even as parents, we should be able to say that to our kids. And y'all, before you go thinking, well, that means I got to pitch the perfect game. Like, I can't ever mess up. My kids are watching me all the time. My wife is watching me all the time. Like, how am, how am I going to say that? Because one of the ways that you follow Christ is through doing what we do every time we get together, and that's confessing and seeking restoration and seeking repentance, that that's how you follow Christ. Every single person in here who has a real, vibrant, life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ should be able to pass that on to another person. This is part of the functionality of our spirit that we would be able to reproduce. So who are you discipling? Who are you mentoring? You may think, well, I couldn't, I couldn't do that. Yes, you can. Let me give you just a little freebie here. You will never disciple somebody perfectly. You will teach people to follow the Jesus that you know. So I, I've had the privilege of, of getting to teach a lot of people, not a lot, not a lot of people, but like I, I've got a good number of folks that I've gotten to teach how to follow Jesus. I'm not a great prayer. I don't do great with praying. I wish I was better at praying. I'm not. I, the people that I teach to follow Jesus, they have to go and find that somewhere else. Or God has to reveal that in them and, and, and bring them into that himself. Ultimately, Jesus is the one who's discipling everybody that we would ever disciple. Jesus is the one who's mentoring everybody that we're ever gonna mentor. But that doesn't mean that you don't step out and say, hey, 
you're trying to follow Jesus. I'm a, maybe a little bit further down the road. Can I help you with that? Um, I read a story uh, on the Gospel Coalition a few years ago. Uh, I couldn't find it, but I remember it well. I'll paraphrase it. But essentially, it's this guy who's recounting um, an experience from his first year of college. And he had a roommate who was a pretty outspoken atheist or agnostic or whatever. And, and this, guy, this guy just wanted to kind of like poke holes in everybody's faith and everything. And on their hall, they had an RA, a resident assistant, um, who, was, who was really confident in his relationship with Jesus. Who was outspoken, sturdy, steady, the kind of guy that you want to be around. And, uh, and so this, this guy, he said, well, you need to talk to the RA. You need to talk to the RA. If you want to debate somebody about Jesus, he's, he knows more than the rest of us. You should go and talk to him about that. And so the, the roommate goes in and sits down and talks to the RA. And the RA says, hey, I hear you've got some questions about faith. And the guy starts launching it and he's with his, you know, with his, you know, his punches to the argument and everything. And the RA stops him and says, I'm not going to answer any of your questions. But here's what I'm going to do. We're going to go and we're going to take your mattress off of your bed down the hall and you're going to sleep on the ground beside me. And for the next month, you're going to do everything that I do. When I wake up, you're going to wake up. When I go to bed, you're going to go to bed. When I go to class, you're going to go to class. We're going to eat together. We're going to do everything together for the next month. And at the end of that month, you tell me if this is real. You tell me if this makes a difference. It's only at that point that I'll argue with you about anything. But first, you need to tell me, does it make a difference? North Cross, every single one of you could do the exact same thing. Every single one of you could say, this makes a difference. Follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Be an imitator of me as I imitate Christ. And y'all, if you're going to be able to say, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, or follow me as I follow Christ, you're gonna need to have to understand some things. First of all, this thing with you and Jesus, it's real. It's real. Whether you're on a mountain peak or a valley low, <laughs> right? It's real. Whether it's the dark night of your soul or whether you're skipping through pastures, it's real. This thing with you and Jesus is real. Secondly, your relationship or experience with him, your communion with him, your intimacy with him is the most valuable thing that you have to offer anyone on this planet. And before, and, and before you would think that you have anything else to offer anybody else on this planet that's more valuable than that, you just don't. What the world around you needs is not your talents primarily, it's not your treasures primarily, it's not your time primarily, it's Jesus Christ living in you. And then you need to understand that your relationship with him is the most important and vital thing about you. That you would look in the mirror and you would say, as, as uh, the beloved disciple John said, I am the beloved of Christ. That that is who you are. More than anything else, more than any achievement, that you belong to Jesus. And there is nothing, 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 nothing that the world needs more than Christ in you, the hope of glory. Recover the art of imitating our Savior in the world, everywhere you go. They desperately, desperately need it. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Um, God, thank you that you have made us well. 
Um, thank you that you, uh, in part of making us well, is uh, you determining to use us uh, for your kingdom and for your glory. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.